Okay, excellent. Well, I like to do um, a couple things, and that is uh, take questions. We learn best through inquisitiveness and questions as human beings. If you're asking something, you know, as a former educator, we used to say that curiosity is king. Um, you, you really can harbor a place in a, a, an environment of learning when there is genuine curiosity about something. And so oftentimes when I would teach school or even as I teach here, I'll ask a question. Uh, we call that in, in, um, in education, the essential question, the essential question. And then everything that you're teaching is going back and you're going to answer that question at the very beginning. But you ask a question and pe that piques people's curiosity. And then you've opened up their mind to thinking about that topic. Yeah, I've always wondered what, what is the deal with that. And then you go through these, there, there's actually a formula that some teachers follow. It's you ask an essential question, you access prior knowledge of that topic, then you teach, and then you summarize. And in summarizing, you answer the essential question. So I like questions, and I like when people ask me questions, as long as they're really questions and not um, people <laughs> telling me what they know through the form of a question mark at the end of the sentence. But genuine questions are so good. And Yeshua liked questions as well. Uh, our faith is grounded upon asking and searching and seeking. Um, so one of the things I do, people ask me questions sometimes, oftentimes. They either text them to me or they email them to me or they come up to me and ask me questions. And they're really good questions. And so oftentimes what I say is email me the question. And I hope that it doesn't sound like I'm trying to dodge the question when I say that. But I want people to email me the question. Sometimes I answer it right then and there. Email me the question. And then what I have, I have a folder in my email account that's called questions, DMF questions. And I drag that email into that folder. So times like this, about once or twice a year, I spend a couple weeks going through the questions that you all ask because someone might be brave enough to ask the question that three people in the room aren't brave enough to ask. So it works out, we answer all those questions. But some questions I'm gonna to address today, time permitting, are the following. How do I, Gabe Rutledge, balance work family, and ministry, and like what I do at Dothan Messianic Fellowship. It's a really good question. Somebody asked just like last week, and I wanted to take time to answer that because there's some things in there that pertain to you all as well that I think you would benefit from me doing um, that you, know, you could steal from me. Uh, number two, somebody asked me this week, how do we hear God speak? A young lady asked me this week a very good, deep question. How do we hear God speak? Do we hear, can we hear God speak? And then thirdly, I'm going to answer, what is my outlook on the situation going on in Israel? What is my outlook going on uh, on that, okay? Uh, number four, there seems to be this thing called the Hebrew Roots Movement. What is it, and are we as a congregation affiliated? Why or why not? This is actually asked by a couple. Uh, a married couple came up to me a few weeks back and asked me this question, and I wanted to address that as well. Lots of good questions, and we're going to wrap up. We're going to about, about 45 minutes, so I want to I um, give you guys time to ask questions about the questions. So number one, you guys ready? How do I balance work, family, and ministry? Let me, let me preface it by saying I'm still learning how to do this correctly. <laughs> and it's always things can get out of balance, just like the tires in our car can get out of balance sometimes. And I'm always having to check and recheck and get feedback from my wife and my family and people that I consider mentors in my life. But here's some, some basic things that I do and boundaries that I have in my life. I've been here teaching at Dothan Messianic Fellowship for about five and a half years. Um, for those who don't know, we're, we're an elder-led congregation. Um, and we don't have anyone on full-time paid staff. I'm not on paid staff here. I work full-time for a living, so that, that helps me do some things, but it also hinders me to be able to do some other things. But what it does do is it makes it where I'm, I'm at work from Monday through Friday, from 7.30 to 4.30 or whatever, and 
I can't go visit everybody in the hospital. I can't go visit. I can't write letters. I can't do a lot of things. I can't do all the marriage counseling and everything else. But what it makes me have to do is to delegate that to other people and say, hey, can you go visit, you know, like Bob and Brenda just did an awesome job last week of going and visiting Tracy Satterfield in the hospital. Can you go do this? And, and, it, and it, yeah, and Tanya and Brian do a great job. It makes other people have to exercise the gifts that they've been given. And so the things that you've been given to, and, and, and qualified to be able to do, you have to do them because I don't have time for that. And it kind of sets us all up for success in that. We all exercise those gifts, and I have to ask you all to help me with that. Um, but yeah, so I, I work, and so it's, it's, it's a balancing act that I have to do. But here's my formula for, for balancing this, is the following. With a few, ex a few occasional exceptions, I try to reserve Sundays for family time and trips. So if you, if you all have never noticed, I'm here all day Saturday, um, really till like we lock up and we, we go home. So for me, I don't, I don't really talk to my family on Saturdays until Saturday night, really. Um, so that's important that I block off as a, a, a day where we can, or at least half a day, where we can spend time together and go places or do things together where I can work around my house. But I try to do that. Um, I, there are some occasional exceptions to that. Secondly, with almost no exceptions, I reserve Thursday night as a date night for Stacy and myself. Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m., we leave the kids either with my mom or by themselves at home, and we go off to a restaurant, we go you know, for a walk, whatever we wanna do. We go shopping, and we just spend time alone for three hours, once a week. And that's so important because, um, how many of you know, if you've been married for a long time, Stacy and I've been married for 17 years now, if been married for a long time, sometimes you lose your friendship. Sometimes your friendship kind of dissolves a little bit, especially when you have kids and you're working and all this stuff and you have life throws a lot of stressors at you, doesn't it? And you kind of lose that, what initially attracted you to each other, right? And your personalities and everything. And so when Stacey and I go off, sometimes we, we do a double date with other couples, but we go off, we spend time intentionally alone where we can remember those parts about us that, were, that attracted us to one another. You know, our senses of humor or my good jokes, you know, and things. I'm just kidding. But, Stacy's not here, though. No, she's not here to shake her head at me. But yeah, do that. If you, guys, this is for everybody. Like, do that. If, if you're a married couple in the room, leave your kids with somebody, um, hopefully a responsible person, and go off on a date. Even if you don't have kids, be intentional about going out on a date somewhere and doing something fun together and, and build that friendship and those memories together. Thirdly, how I balance work and how I balance ministry and, and my family. With zero exceptions, I don't answer the phone during dinner time. I don't even have my phone on me. I don't even have my phone ringer on. So, you know, I don't, it, it isn't, the time isn't consistent necessarily, but we sit down at the table and we, you know, I help prepare a meal and everything, and we sit down at the table and we eat, and we don't have any phones at the table whatsoever. So there's like a one-hour window there where I'm just like, with my family and there's no distractions. Um, but there's zero exceptions to that. But don't worry, like if I finish my food and I see that you've called 16 times, I'll maybe return your call. Um, fourthly, once a month or so, I take off and I go on a trip with either all or part of my immediate family. Like this past weekend, you all didn't see me here because I was in Chattanooga and I spent Shabbat on a farm and we did a little Bible study and Michael was there, Noah was there, Stacy were there. And I left the two younger boys with my mom and they were here, but um, just getting out and, and allowing, you know, kind of Dothamessianic fellowship and the, the Shabbat services to go on without me is really important um, to letting other people exercise their gift in teaching, um, people who, you know, other elders or 
or people who have a call to, to, to teach and ability to teach and getting up, them up here to kind of work that muscle out a little bit is really important as well. So it gets me completely gone and, um, and I, I can just kind of rest a little bit in, in that as well. So do you guys have any questions about this question? You see anything you want to try to steal and emulate in your lives? Something? All of the above. All of the above, yeah, yeah. It's really important. And, he, and here are some reasons why. You know, Moses had how many sons? Two sons. Do we ever hear of anything about his sons after they cross into the promised land? We don't. We hear about Aaron's sons. All right? They become the Kohanim, the priests in the temple. But we never hear about Moses' sons. Why is that? I have a theory that Moses had a bad habit of putting the ministry and leading Israel before his own family and leading his family. Now, I could be wrong, but there is, that could be substantiated in that. Remember when Jethro came up to him, his father-in-law, and said, hey, Moses, you're doing too much. You're taking on too much. You need to dial it back. You need to appoint leaders who can deal with the small things and issues within Israel, and you, maybe you just deal with the big things. So I think may, maybe Moses kind of got things out of whack a little bit. But you never hear about his sons, and, and I think that's kind of tragic. And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily care if my sons grow on to be big names or anything like that. That's not my motivation. But rather, what I'm saying is, I don't want my sons to, to resent me or my faith or their faith because of me maybe having the propensity to put ministry and, and helping other people find their faith and, and counseling other couples or something over them. Does that make sense? I grew up a pastor's kid. My, past, my dad was a pastor for 30 years, um, pretty much all my life. And I remember, guys, sitting in church um, till, till 2 o'clock in the afternoon sometimes, waiting for my dad to finish a talk, talking to people on a Sunday. Um, and I would oftentimes just go outside. I would, um, I would go play in the woods out next to the church and then eventually wait for like, my dad to start honking the horn and eventually come out of the woods and, and we get in the car and, and go home. But I remember my dad just being emotionally exhausted every Sunday. And I remember my dad didn't really have much to give back uh, on that day to us as a family. And that was kind of tragic. Um, but I can remember uh, my parents would drive, my mom would, would uh, drive later. So my dad would get to church earlier and get everything kind of set up and stuff. And then my mom would drive later and she would bring us kids. And so uh, leaving the church was tricky sometimes because they had two separate vehicles. And this was at, back before an age of cell phones, right? So sometimes one parent didn't know uh, which kid had who. And I would remember I'd be in the woods playing or waiting for my dad to finish talking. I remember eventually, I mean, it was getting late in the afternoon. I thought, surely my dad is done talking now. And I came back to the church and all the doors were locked and all the cars were gone. And I was just there at the church, I mean, like, you know, 10 miles from my house. I'm like, what do I do now? There's no cell phones, you know, and I'm probably like nine years old. And, um, you know, I don't know why they, they, uh, got home and didn't realize I wasn't there, but that's maybe that speaks to how much they liked me around. But so I had to go to like this trailer park next door and knock on someone's door and use their phone and call home. And, and I remember dialing the number and my mom answered and she, I was like, mom, this is Gabe. And she's like, where are you? And I was like, I'm at the trailer park next to the church. You left me at the church, but you know, funny little stories like that. But over time, you know, you see your parents and the things they go through in ministry and the emotional uh, distress sometimes that, that entails, um, just the taxation over time, over, over 30 years of watching your parents go through that in the ministry. You look at that as a child of those people and you say, I want nothing to do with that. That looks horrible. Um, so as I stepped into this role, I made sure that I, I try my best not to repeat some of the, the, the errors 
uh, of my parents in that sense. And I try to have very firm boundaries around my time and my family and my privacy in that sense. You know, my dad had a, always had a habit of sharing stories about me, like mischievous stories about me growing up. Um, like I shared the one about the baptism at Sukkot. Lots of stories. Like every week he had a new story. You know, I, I, I was probably giving him tons of material, but every week he had a new story, right? And so he would share that in front of the whole church. And so there was a stigma that was kind of placed on me that like, I was the mischievous kid, you know, the mischievous pastor's kid. And, you know, it's probably true, but... If you notice, I never tell stories about my kids. Why? Because I don't, I don't want them to get that stigma. I want them to have their own kind of identity and who they are, and I don't want to invade their privacy and share all that with you all, at least not without their permission and their blessing to do so. Um, so just things like that. And, and thirdly, thirdly um, pastors more, and this doesn't make the headlines very much, um, pastors and ministry leaders, more than any kind of scandal or, or, or money issue or, or you know, thing that would make good headlines, more than all of that, pastors fall prey to burnout more than anything else. Burnout. And they just kind of disappear into the background, and then that's all you see of them. So we don't really, that is, like I said, doesn't really make the headlines, does it? But I face, constantly face, struggling with and am up against burnouts and have to be mindful of that. That's the number, way, number one way in which the enemy works against people who are trying to teach the Bible to other people, shepherds and the flock, is burnout. And that comes in and looks like a lot of different ways. But how do I combat burnout? I take a break. I take a, I take a Sabbath sometimes from doing what I do. Um, and I just kind of get away. That's really important. So um, I hope that answers that question uh, thoroughly. Thank you to the person who asked it. The next question I got is how do we hear God speak? This is a really good question because oftentimes we overlook this idea of God speaking to us. And first of all, we have to ask the question, does God even speak to us? Is God a personal, personal God? Does, does God still communicate with humanity? And if so, how? Well, let me ask this question. Does God even need to speak to us? Does he have to? Is he beholden to us to speak to us? No, the answer is no. In, in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. Like Peter is saying, we, don't, God doesn't need, we have everything we need to live righteously. Where is that in, in scripture? We have everything we need. But does God speak to us? Yeah, there's, there's several different ways in which God speaks to us. And I hear some of you answering them. We can hear God speak. Go to Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. We can hear God speak, number one, through Scripture. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. It says, In days gone, in like the old days, God spoke in many and varied ways to the fathers through the prophets. Through the prophets. So let's pause there in verse 1. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that if you have what we call in your Bible the prophetic books, the books of the prophets, then you have God's word. God has spoken to you. He spoke to us through the prophets, right? So there, you have it. Now, it's not like real time. It's from the old days. But does God change? Does his will change? Does his word change? No. His nature does not change. So there, we have his word. We have that right there. But now, it says in verse 2, in the last days, 
He has spoken to us through his Son, to whom he has given ownership of everything, and through whom he created the universe. So what two ways does he speak to us there? Through the prophets and through his Son, the revelation of Messiah. Um, some, a question that someone asks, um, I get this question maybe once a year or so, if you had to pick which part of your Bible you're going to, to have, the New Testament or the Old Testament, you know, as if that's not like a man-made division anyways, but if you're going to pick one part of your Bible that you, you have to choose one or the other, and I hate this question because I feel like the whole Bible is so good and so beautiful to have, and I hate to even divide it, but if I had to pick, I would pick the part of my Bible which is the reveal, the, the revelation of God in flesh. I'd have to pick that part of my Bible that is like, that talks about Yeshua being the word made flesh. He is the ultimate revelation. The writer of Hebrews is saying that he is, he is even beyond the prophets in terms of the, the revelation of the nature of God. So yeah, I'd have to pick that part. Now, I don't want to have to pick. Don't, don't get me wrong. But if I had to, I'd pick at least the Gospels because they're the fullness of God's nature. Now, let's go to first... Well, you guys probably know this. First Timothy 3.16. Or is it Second Timothy 3.16? I think I have it wrong. What is it? All Scripture is... God breathe. Yeah, it's um, theonustos, which is like literally the breath of God. And what is it? What is it good for? Reproof, doctrine, correction, instruction and righteousness, training up of, in righteousness. So there we have it. All Scripture is God breathe, and it's and it's worthy of all those things. It's good for all those things. So number one, God speaks to us how through His word, through His word. God is still speaking to us through his word. The, the book of Hebrews says the word of God is living and it is active. It's not a stale book that is just like black, black ink on white paper. That it's living and it is active. When you open the pages of scripture and you read it, it changes you, it conforms you, it molds you into the image of his son, ideally. Even if you read it a thousand times, yeah. Number two, God can speak to us through difficulties. Go with me to Psalm 119. Verse 67 and 68. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 67 and 68. Psalm 119. Yeah. Psalm 119. 67 and 68. Before I was humbled, I used to go astray, but now I observe your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your laws. What do your translations say? Before I was humble, what do you have? Afflicted. Before I was afflicted. What else do you have? Anybody? What is it? Humbled. Humbled. Anybody else have anything different? Verse 67, before I was? Nobody has anything different? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Afflicted? I went astray. So, affliction sometimes, it teaches us, doesn't it? Or it should, Hopefully. Humbling teaches us. Now, who's doing the humbling here in Psalm 119? God is. Yeah. Sometimes we need that humbling. Sometimes we don't need it, but we still get it, don't we? Now, does this verse say that every difficulty or every, every hardship that we go through is a symptom of sin and we need chastisement for that sin? No. And so often believers think that. They think, oh, I'm going through a hard time. I need, there must be some unrepentant sin in my life that I need to, you know, to, to pray about and it come to light. That Sometimes you just go through hard things because God's trying to puts you more in union with the suffering of Messiah. And it's not because of unrepentant sin. There's a lot of very righteous people that suffer a lot. 
And he does that, and I've said this in the past, he does that sometimes to observe the actions and the reactions of people around that person. He shakes the faith of someone who's, he knows whose faith is unshakable to test the reactions of people around them. So, yeah, Joe, yeah, absolutely. So we got God speaks to us through his word, his written word. God speaks to us sometimes through hardships that we have to experience. Thirdly, God speaks to us through teachers who use the Bible as their source. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12. Romans 12, and we're looking at verses 6 to 8. Romans 12, 6 to 8. Paul says, We have gifts that differ and which are meant to be used according to the grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, use it to the extent of your trust. If it is serving, use it to serve. If you're a teacher, use your gift in teaching. If you're a counselor, use, it, use your gift to comfort and exhort. If you are someone who gives... Do it simply and generously. If you're in a position of leadership, lead with diligence and zeal. If you're one who does acts of mercy, do them cheerfully. So he says, if you are a teacher, use your gift in teaching. So what are they teaching? They're teaching God's word, right? So that's the third way in which we can hear God speak today is through people teaching God's word and who are using God's word as a source of their teaching. Okay, sometimes he even uses people that aren't necessarily propped up in a position of teach a teacher to speak to you. With that, you've got to be a little bit more discerning. With that, you've got to be a little bit more careful. And you have, to, you have to test what they are telling you against the written word of God. So I always say this, but it never fails that people forget this. If someone comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord. He told me to tell you this. But then you look at and you know the written word of God. You stored it up in your heart. And it's in direct defiance to God's written word. And that person doesn't have a word from the Lord. Right? They have a word from something else. Okay? And just disregard it. All right? But I always say that, but people tend to forget that. It's so important. So let's review. God speaks to us through his written word. He speaks to us sometimes through hardships. He speaks to us through other people sometimes, and teachers. Fourthly, God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And this is a really big one. Uh, John 14, 26, Yeshua says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. See, there's active communication going there. All things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Wow, that's, that's a very invaluable tool we have in our tool belt, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit. So God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us sometimes through hardships we have to walk through. God speaks to us through teachers and other believers sometimes. And then God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Let me get to this last one, and I'll take your question. Lastly, God speaks to us through his creation, doesn't he? This is what we call general revelation. All humanity has no excuse. Paul says that they are without excuse because they see that there is an ordered universe around us, that everything had to have been created. Everything had to have been set in motion. You know, even from the smallest atom to the, the greatest galaxies, there's order. And Psalm 19, verse 1 through 2, if you want to go there, I'll read it in Hebrew. It says, Hashemayim, the heavens, misaf, Reem. This word right here, safar, is uh, like, it's where we get the word book in Hebrew, safar. But it's also the word to count, literally counting out. Like a, a scribe in Hebrew is called a sofer. Uh, it's, it's, it's someone who counts something. So it's saying that the, the heavens are counting the kavod of God, the, the glory of God. Isn't that a cool picture of the, the heavens just counting the glory and keeping track of the glory of God? And the umaaseh and the works the dive of his hand. Magid, 
and, and are test, the, uh, testifying harakia, the, the, the skies, the rakia, the firmament sometimes is translated, are, are testifying of the God's glory. So there you have it. Like creation is another way in which God speaks to us. Now, it's not this personal thing where he like, you know, hey, Suzanne, I need you to do this or not do this. Or Brian, don't do that. But you look at creation, you say, there is a loving God there somewhere. I need to get to know that loving God, right? So God speaks to us. God speaks to us through his written word. He speaks to us through teachers. He speaks to us through hardships. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, right? When God speaks to me, Gabe Rutledge, I'm just going to be honest with you all here. I, I don't have a lot of like hearing the voice of God kind of moments. I, that'd be great if I did. When God speaks to me, it's in this order of descending frequency, okay? What that means is like, number one, his written word, that's how he speaks to me the most. Now, how am I supposed to hear God speak if I don't open the Bible, right? And read the words of God. I have to open them and read them for him to speak to me through them, right? And then secondly, I hear God speak to me through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Now, I was trying to explain this to the person who asked this question, the young lady who asked this question. It's like, how do you hear the Holy Spirit talk to you? It's like when you see, when you're driving down the road and you see a billboard and you read it and then it passes by you and then you process it. It's not like that, but rather it's as if I was, I saw it and understood it, but I didn't see a billboard there. Does that make sense? It's like there's this deep impression on you and you didn't hear words. You didn't see a sign. There wasn't any of that. It's just there is this deep, and I always point right here because that's kind of where it, it's kind of this impression right here in this part of my body for some reason where it's like, I feel like I'm supposed to go talk to that person or I feel like I'm supposed to give them that or I'm, I'm to go, um, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't go there. You know, sometimes it's that. It's like I shouldn't be in this room or different things. And it's always about right here where I feel that impression of the Holy Spirit. It's as if someone spoke to me, but they didn't speak to me, but I understood what they said to me. I know it doesn't really make sense, but if you ever had the Holy Spirit speak to you, that probably makes sense. So then thirdly, godly people who study his word and spend time, uh, extended amounts of time in prayer, they speak to me sometimes, and I can tell that it's the word of God speaking to me through them. So that's just in, in, in descending order how I hear God speak to me. And then lastly, and this is like I'm being completely honest with you, every three to five years, I might get a dream where I feel like God is speaking to me. And it's usually a dream that sticks with me. Usually I don't remember dreams very well. But it sticks with me, and then sometimes I even have that dream repeatedly. And I know that God is trying to tell me something. Now, I usually keep those very private unless it, it's like in, in the dream, I'm going up to that person and telling them what I dreamt about. Um, but I usually keep them mostly private. And, and it's not like I'm up here and I'm going to give you like a new dream that I had last night or something. Because um, most of them are really weird and probably just a product of eating spicy food. But there's, there's dreams where you know, I think God's trying to impress something upon me in this dream. Um, but that's, that's just honestly how he speaks to me. Now, I had a question. Suzanne, did you have a question? Um, I was just going to make a point that the one scripture... I forgot what it is. Like, I was like, it's about the Holy Spirit, and it's said in that scripture, 14 verses. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it said that the Holy Spirit will actually bring the word to your remembrance. Mm. And that's important. It is. Yeah. In the Holy Spirit, you notice the, the congruency with the written word. The Holy Spirit's bringing the written word to your remembrance. And how are you going to remember it if you haven't read it, right? I can't stress that enough. 
So cool. Any other questions before I move on to the next question, Tanya? Uh, this is a comment. Yeah. When I'm really praying about a decision and not knowing which way to go, yeah. um, I really try to follow the feeling of what I'm mm. Yeah, she's saying, for those who couldn't hear, sometimes when I'm praying for guidance and direction, sometimes I follow the peace. Because God is a God of peace, right? And, and she says, I follow, if, I, if my heart feels a little bit, or if I feel, um, if I'm going in that direction, and it's not, it doesn't give me peace, and it's not where the direction God's calling me to. Um, so yeah, that's good. Any other questions, guys, before I move on to this next one? We're doing good on time. But this next one's a big one, so we're going to hover on it for a little bit. Um, what is my outlook on the situation going on in Israel right now? Ooh. It's a mess, <laughs> but it's a mess that God is in control of, right? Um, I typed out some things here. Um, uh, this is an ancient problem. It's not a new problem. It's an ancient problem, isn't it? Uh, it's a biblical problem that we have going on. But the outlook on Israel, first of all, we have to establish and we all have to agree upon that the Bible is the written word of God. And it is true and, and it is inspired. And then in it, especially in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, we get the borders of Israel described by God to Abraham. We get the borders of, of, this, of this people group that would later become called Israel, the sons of Abraham. It goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and his sons. And the borders of Israel are as such. Let me read Genesis 15, 18 to 21. He says, Unto your seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, and he's talking about these different territories here, the, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonite, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Emirate, and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusites. So he's saying, and all those, you know, you can dig up the dirt and you can find where those people lived. God is saying to Abraham, to you and your descendants, I will give the land that fits within these boundaries. Okay? And when the Hebrews came out of Egypt, when Israel came out of Egypt, their status changed from being an enslaved people to the status of a free nation to whom God gave the Torah to follow, right? Are we tracking so far? He then repeated the promise he gave to their forefathers concerning that land where they were to settle. And in Exodus 23, verses 30, verse 31, God says, And I will set their border from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hands and will drive them out before you. So there we have, if we, if we look at this issue of Israel... From a biblical perspective, we know that there are clearly defined boundaries that God has ordained for this people called Israel. Everybody tracking so far? And we can find those boundaries in the Bible. And we all agree the Bible is the word of God. So there, we're framing this whole issue with the Bible and what we know about what God said about the people of Israel in their land. But like anything with Israel, though, my outlook is good and it's positive. But like with anything with Israel... Things will have to get worse before they get better. Uh, we call that, and Paul calls that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the birth pangs of Messiah. I was talking with Miss Joanne last night, 
and I said, what was it like, I think she was 11 years old, when the 1948 War for Independence in Israel broke out. And uh, her mother was attending a uh, prophecy class at a nearby church, and they were studying that. But it was like, you know, there's very few people, I think there's maybe two people in this room, maybe, maybe more than that, that maybe can remember that event. That can remember that event. So there was, there's only a few people in this room that lived in a time when there was no Israel on the map. And then there was. That's very interesting because... That changed a lot about how the church views end-time eschatology and prophecy. Suddenly, we, it was very convenient to read the Bible and prophecy where there was no Israel. And then now we have to read biblical prophecy. Now there's Israel. And how does that fit into our eschatology? How do we fit that in? We might have to readjust some things. But take 1948, for example, the war for independence in Israel. With 1948 and the establishment of Israel as a sovereign geopolitical nation state for the first time in over 2,000 years, it came, came on the heels of the world's most horrific human tragedy that was the Holocaust. So sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. But even still, once the new nation was born, a full-scale war was declared. And many nations invaded Israel. And ever since then, the nations that surround Israel have disliked its presence and refused to acknowledge it as being such a legitimate nation. In his famous uh, 2005 speech at this conference in Tehran called A World Without Zionism, Ahmed, uh, Ahmedine, uh, I'm sorry, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad famously said, and he was just echoing the Imam, the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini, he said that Israel should be wiped off the map. And that Iran should exist, uh, Iran should assist the Islamic factions within Palestine to accomplish this goal. He said that back in 2005. You see, this conflict is not about ethnicity. It's not about race. This conflict is over the legitimacy of sacred texts and whose God is sovereign. After all, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? We shouldn't make it about flesh and blood. And sadly, I've seen well-intentioned Christians and Jews make it about race. They've made it about flesh and blood when it isn't. It is, in its simplest terms, this conflict, it's a conflict over a fundamentalist view of the Quran and the interpretation of the Quran, which is the sacred text of Islam, and the Bible. With the epicenter right now being the 36-acre plateau that is in East Jerusalem that we call the Temple Mount. So basically, it's a false religion attempting to gain superiority over a true religion. It's important to identify a couple themes with this conflict and others that will continue to arise in the Middle East. Number one, the media in the United States of America is full of people, they call themselves reporters and journalists, but they are not. They're not that, okay? Don't believe that. They don't care about facts or objective truth. They care about sensationalism. They care about views. They care about clicks. They care about revenue and status of their career. So these reporters or these journalists, many of them, now there are real journalists out there. They're hard to find. They can't be fully trusted because of that. 
And you must be very discerning when you're getting your news from them. Let me show you a slide, for instance. Um, you guys know this that happened uh, a few days after the initial invasion of Hamas on October 7th. This is a New York Times article. They put out on October the 17th at 2.12 p.m. They said, breaking news, an Israeli airstrike hit a Gaza hospital on Tuesday, killing at least 200 Palestinians, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, uh, which said the number of casualties was expected to rise. And then at 2.53, the New York Times put out updates. At least 500 people were killed by an Israeli airstrike at a Gaza hospital, the Palestinian Health Ministry said. Follow our live coverage. And then two hours later, 4.45 p.m., updates. Now, a lot can happen in two hours, can't it? Wars can begin and end in two hours, if you convince enough people of that. Shame on them, right? It says, update, the Israeli military said its intelligence indicated that a rocket that malfunctioned after it was launched by a Palestinian armed group was responsible for the explosion that killed hundreds of people in Gaza City. You see how fast things can change? You see how untrue reporting? But they're saying with such like certainty, this happened this way. And then, and then people, especially United States of America, Americans have such a short attention span. And we see something on Twitter and we're like, oh wow, that's tragic. Wow, Israel is evil, right? And then as the story progresses, we don't have the, the attention span to follow up and go back and say, oh wait, you mean that wasn't an Israeli airstrike like the news reported and claimed to be true? That was actually a malfunctioning rocket that was launched by an Islamic Jihad group from the back of a hospital in the middle of a cemetery? But how many things could have happened? How many things could happen in two short hours? A lot, right? And how many people are not going to go back and read and do their homework? So let me go back. Personally, I believe this could go very bad very quickly, what's going on in Israel. We could see the United States wage a proxy war against Iran and Israel if we aren't already. Or we could see other nations getting involved and the U.S.'s direct involvement in the situation. The Bible does, after all, in Revelation 19 and 16 and 19, it speaks of a great conflict in which many rulers and generals of the earth will be led in a battle against Jerusalem. We call that the Battle of Har Megiddo, the Battle of the Hill of Megiddo or Armageddon sometimes. That says that in Revelation 16 and 19. So that's going to happen at some point. And in Revelation 16, it says the Antichrist will be leading the charge. Yeshua will return to earth with the armies of heaven, and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will defeat the forces of evil. He will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, Revelation 19, 20. And he will bind Satan, and he will set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. At Armageddon, it says in Revelation 16 that the Lord treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's Revelation 16, 19. And all things will be made right. So that's coming in the future. There will be a big, big war. There will be boots on the ground, lots of generals, lots of armies, and lots of bloodshed. Is this it? Is this the moment? Are we all about to witness Armageddon? What do you think I'm going to say? I don't know. If we were living in 1948, 1967, or 1973, all of which were wars in Israel, we would all be wondering the same thing, wouldn't we? My concern and my hesitancy in telling you that this is the big one. Remember, what's that show? It's a big one. Oh, Sanford inside. It's the big one, right? Coming home. Yeah, Elizabeth, I'm coming home, Elizabeth. It's the big one. My concern in telling you that this is the big one 
is that we will suddenly shift our focus inward. We will all be thinking about calories, ammo, water filtration, instead of going into all nations and making disciples. I'm not insulting people who, are, who value preparedness. I think being prepared for the collapse of our grid and supply chain is actually wise. But I am cautioning us not to become fearful of what we see on the news. Do not fear Islam. Do not fear ISIS. Do not fear China. Do not fear Iran. Do not fear China. Did I already say China? Yeah. Do not fear Putin. All right? Why? Because his word says that he has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and sound mind. All right? So if you have a spirit of fear when you're watching the news, turn it off. Get in God's word. That spirit did not come from God. If you have a spirit of anxiety or fear, you need to rebuke it. So here's what I know about this conflict. Every conflict that arises in Israel, people die. Good people die on both sides and bad people die on both sides. The media will exploit that and you will feel angry, and you'll feel powerless. And this is the essence of war, and war is a symptom of living in a fallen, sinful world. Every conflict, number two, that arises in Israel is a forced pivot point for those who are watching it. This is where it's really important. It is a time to choose. When Israel comes into a conflict, it's time to choose. When Israel is shaken, so are the nations. It's a forced exposure of the attitudes, the beliefs, and the conviction of a human's heart. People are choosing. People are polarizing. People are picking sides, aren't they? Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Whoever dishonors you, I will curse, right? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I hope our nation continues to bless Israel. Is Israel perfect? Is their government perfect? Is their army perfect? No. No, absolutely not. But we long for a perfect king, don't we? Deuteronomy 37, 30 verse 7 says, And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes, Israel, and the enemies who persecuted you. Jeremiah 30 verse 20 reads, Their children, the children of Israel, shall be as they were in the old days. And their congreg congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all those who oppress them. That's what we have to look forward to is God being just. God upholding his promises with Israel. So it's in important that we, when we're looking at this issue going on in Israel, we frame it with the knowledge of scripture in the pages of the Bible. And second, with the most reliable media sources we can find. Regardless, we can all agree we should continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? I've got 15 minutes. You guys want to do one more question? We call today. I'm looking at people's eyes, seeing if we're getting sleepy. Do we have any questions about that question before I move on? No? Okay, cool. All minds are clear. Okay. This is another question I got. There seems to be this thing called the Hebrew Roots Movement. What is it, and are we as a congregation affiliated? Why or why not? This is a question asked by a couple, um, like I said, about two or three weeks ago. They came to me and asked this question. It was a really good question. Um, I have been uh, in the messianic world for about 12 years now, 14 years, give or take. And I've seen, I've seen it all. I visited, I visited probably 15 to 18 different messianic or Hebrew roots congregations uh, in probably three different countries. Uh, most of them here in the United States of America. I've, se I've seen a lot. Um, 
there seems to be in probably the last uh, eight or ten years this this dichotomization of this of these groups and these labels that we put on ourselves one being messianic or messianic judaism and the other being hebrew roots there seems to be this dichotomization and i, I look at it and i find it interesting that these two are like kind of polarizing themselves at least on the internet world i don't know if that's happening in real life i don't think it is happening in real life but at least in internet land there's like this this dichotomization of messianic and hebrew roots and labels in general are i don't i don't particularly enjoy labels and i'll get into that here in a second but um i tend when people ask me this question i tend to distance myself from the label of hebrew roots and instead move towards the label of messianic or messianic judaism or something like that and here's why um i like i said i i've i've been to a plethora of congregations and i've seen i've been to entire hebrew roots con conferences before and interacted with dozens of people at hebrew roots conferences so i'm not i'm not just flying blindly here, but lumped into the Hebrew Roots movement are a plethora of false doctrines and unfruitful teachings. I have seen and witnessed firsthand a very broad spectrum of teaching being pumped out of the Hebrew Roots movement to include things like polygamy, false views of the Godhead, which to their credit is the case within Messianic Judaism as well, odd and unbiblical familial structures and behaviors, I've seen odd and unbiblical calendars and methods of reckoning the holy days. I've seen Hebrew roots teachers teach anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic theories and doctrines. I've seen Hebrew roots teachers peddle videos for money uh, or audio teachings that are sensationalized or just straight up wrong or false. I've seen Hebrew roots movement and teachers within it teach that anyone who comes to faith in Messiah and keeps the Torah is a descendant of one of the lost 10 tribes of Israel. I've seen and heard Hebrew roots teachers butcher the Hebrew language while claiming to be a Torah teacher. Uh, with many self-professed Hebrew roots congregations and groups, there is a belief that you must attempt to pronounce the sacred name of God, or you're buying into a great conspiracy to an attempt to hide God's personal name. And if you do this, you're somehow displeasing him. I've seen Hebrew roots teachers and adherents actually sacrifice real sheep on Passover and rub the door of the blood on the doorpost as if it was the first Passover again. I've just about seen it and heard it all. The Hebrew Roots Movement, to me, when I look at it, if you want to say that that's a separate thing, looks to me like sheep without a shepherd. All it takes is one person to Google Hebrew Roots Movement, and they come face to face with a world of weird. Now, the Messianic Jewish world, I'm going to be fair here, is not without its problems. In the Messianic world, there tends to be a propensity to place too much value on the writings of ancient or even medieval rabbis. There tends to be a strong desire to gain approval from the non-Yeshua-following Jewish world, which, over time, causes some to compromise on their beliefs and clear teachings of the New Testament. In Messianic Judaism, there is sometimes too great an emphasis placed on looking, acting, and worshiping like a legitimate Jewish movement so we can be accepted by them when that's just not possible at this point in time. The Messianic Jewish movement has a problem with placing Gentiles in lower positions and status than Jews. And some Messianic Jewish organizations go so far as to disallow non-Jews from serving in leadership roles within their synagogues or their organizations. That's messed up and unbiblical. And I'm not afraid to call out that. The Messianic Jewish world is not without its faults. All that being said, however, we at Dothan Messianic 
fellowship tend to lean more towards the Messianic Jewish world due to its value placed on historic, ancient Jewish Christianity, or what you could say Messianic Judaism, and the volumes of historic and scholastic interpretations of the Torah. We have a massive body of texts, traditions, and interpretation that we must look at and analyze through the teachings of Yeshua, the greatest rabbi who ever lived, right? And not have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, like I see so often in the Hebrew Roots movement. The earliest followers of Messiah were Jews who kept and practiced a degree of Judaism as expressed by Jews at that time. They continued to view the temple and their local synagogue as the center of their faith. And they did not see their faith in Messiah as a radical departure from the faith that they had been practicing all their lives, but rather as a possible reform and fulfillment of it. That is why we chose the name Dothan Messianic Fellowship. It implies that we want to be like Messiah, little messiahs, right? And tend to disassociate ourselves with any title or label that is Hebrew roots. And notice I said label and title, and I didn't say people. Because our doors are always open to anyone who is respectful and desiring to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's the bottom line. Every human needs salvation. And until then, we are lost and without hope, regardless of what label we place on ourselves. A label will not save you. A label oftentimes lulls us into this false security and actually causes a point of, is, a, is a point of division. Gives us this false security that we are saved. We're with this people group, so we're, we're okay. But faith in Yeshua alone is what saves you, right? We all need a personal and individual relationship with Yeshua. Paul in Philippians 3 says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul says, have reasons for such confidence, or boasting, some translations say. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I am a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them like garbage. And some translations actually say like animal dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So if anyone had a right to use a label or identify with a certain faction, it was Paul, right? Paul considers his credentials in past life in comparison to meeting Messiah like rubbish. And this would include man-made labels like Hebrew roots or Messianic or Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Seventh-day Adventist, right? I hope that you have met Messiah. And if not, what are you waiting for? 
I want to uh, close in prayer and then we'll uh, maybe take questions on the questions for about five minutes. Father, I thank you so much that I have a room full of people who are inquisitive and have curiosity, Father. And I pray that you will continue to fan the flames in them to want to seek out your will and your ways. Father, may you continue to use our congregation. May you continue to thrive in it. May your spirit move through us that we can go out and make disciples of all nations. I thank you and praise you so much for the families and the individuals that you have brought into our congregation. May we all go grow closer and closer every time we gather. May we grow closer to you and, and be more conformed to the likeness of our Savior and our Master. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, guys, do you have any questions about the questions? We've got about five minutes. Yeah, Ted? All right. I don't know. <laughs> so a good source of news would be people who are on the ground and don't have anything to gain from their reporting of the news. So, um, yeah, I would say outside the, the um, corporate media that's ultimately all, pretty much all owned by Disney anyways in the eyes of America. But um, someone on the ground who has, no, who has um, nothing to gain or lose from their reporting and we can do that nowadays with social media. You can follow people um, on social media. I've been following, um, there's a gentleman that is friends with Joshua Aaron, and he's actually got called up in the IDF. Anybody know his name? I forgot his name. What is it? Heim Nelson? Melspin. Heim Melspin. Been watching, he's in the IDF, and so he's just making videos and updates from his phone and reporting like that, and I think that's really interesting. At the same time, um, you know, he's got to be careful because he doesn't want to reveal and like dox himself. Um, stuff like that seems to be pretty reliable, but then again, you know, it's like the enemy, uh, one of the best tactics of our enemy is not to just put forth blatant false uh, lies, right? One of the best tactics of our enemy is to flood uh, our eyes with information that is just barely, barely false. Or, or it's true, but it's been skewed a little bit. And he floods the, floods the sound waves in the internet with that. And that's the biggest tactic of our enemy. So, but best source of news really is God's word. Um, reading it and knowing the end of the story. But any other questions? Yeah. What do you do when you have a situation where you're praying about something like a big decision you have to make? Hmm. You have like a deadline, but you don't feel like you're getting any answers, or you're not hearing from God. Yeah, I seek the counsel of other people that I know are wiser than me. Yeah, like when I was contemplating taking this job for this current company I'm in, um, I, I probably talked to no less than four or five other people that I think are wise and are, are um, that can offer me counsel. Because sometimes really it's just, it comes down to like God's permissive will is like, hey, if you take it, you know, just know that there's going to be some sacrifice with doing this or doing that. Um, and sometimes people can say that, hey, have you thought about this though? Like, have you thought about you're going to lose some more time in this way? Or... Um, yeah, so it's just seeking counsel from other people. Does that help? And then just making the decision. Uh, I've heard it. I've heard it said said that a bad decision is better than no decision. I think it's interesting. You don't want to work for Because no decision is a decision, and it's the worst you can make sometimes. Any other questions, guys? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kirk. Um, Brian and I was talking to people about service, and um, I was telling them, you know, traveling with the worship. Christian, you know, to the Messianic, it was like 
Yeah. Lots of acronyms, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like, where do we go with this? What is mm-hmm, it? And mm-hmm. then I started really being quiet and listening to the young people. Mm. And they were like, were they being told? Did they know Yeshua as, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and that really clarified, but this new thing coming out, um, is it called the uh, One New Man? Have you heard of that? No. Uh-huh. It sounds like a, it's, a verse in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's basically the two of you can live together. And just, you know, it comes from Paul Ephesians 2, I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, but anyhow, mm. it's like a new two-house teaching or a new, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and now it's just like, you know, I just... A pastor friend of mine from Colorado said, put it all on the table. Mm-hmm. Everything that you experienced or heard and the Lord's over my Yeah. It didn't mean Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. It all boils down to just having that personal relationship. Yeah. And then finding a group that you feel uh, they they believe, they practice, they worship, um, as close to scriptural model as possible and finding a group and, and being with them and communing with them. To end this, um, one thing I do appreciate I uh, Mike brought it up first um, before I visited here mm-hmm. was y'all are very clear saying this is traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of places don't Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good observation. He's saying he's saying one of the things we do here um, that he never really saw elsewhere was like we make a point to go out our way to say that this is a tradition um, because sometimes in many congregations and within Judaism tradition gets elevated to the place of like on par with God's word, written word, and and that shouldn't be done. Uh, we should say this is tradition. It's good. It can hold us and unify us, and and it's unified the Jewish people for for centuries. But just know that this is a tradition. Um, and there's a difference. We'll talk about this some other day, maybe. There's a difference between tradition and interpretation. Those are two different things, but that's for a different day. Well, guys, next week we'll do part two of Q&A. Continue to send me your questions. Email them to me at gabrielrutledge at gmail.com. And uh, I'll put them in that folder. If I have time, I'll get to them. So, yeah. All right, yeah. Um, I just have a comment about hearing God. And, uh, yeah. And I just remembered it because Kurt and I were talking outside uh, where that picture on the wall is. The yeah. Painting. Yeah. And I was also talking with Beverly, um, telling them that story. So, yeah, that, that painting belonged to us. Mm. A friend back in 2010, when Michael and Hannah were pretty much still in diapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael maybe not so, but um, And... Uh, the ironic blessing was really on our hearts at that time. Mm. And so uh, our friend, Hannah May, um, said, you know, when we approached her about, you know, hey, just, you know, we want something as a painting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and she prays before she paints. Mm. And uh, she also plays violin, but anyway, uh, and so she painted that not knowing that that verse the blessing was really on our heart mm. at that time, and that whole painting on that wall is nothing but the Iranian blessing. Oh, that's cool. And so she had no idea. Yeah. You know, so through prayer, 
you know, that that's it's like confirmed, guess, yeah. Again, with the Holy Spirit impressing upon her, yeah. This is what these people. That this is what was blessed them. Yeah. And when we got it. We we're like, wow, why? <laughs> that's neat. And, yeah. And it's like a little like um. Like uh, when you, when you're walking down a, if you guys ever been backpacking long distances before, sometimes it gets kind of dark and you're not sure if you're on the right trail. There's these things, especially if you hike the Appalachian Trail, this thing called trail magic, where people will just they'll drive down the road and know where the they know where the trail intersects the road, and they'll leave things on the road like snacks or goodies or chocolate or water or something like that, and it confirms you're on the right path. Sometimes God speaks to us as a way of just doing that, confirming Brian, like you've got the right thing on your mind, you're doing this right. And I'm going to confirm that in you. So, yeah. I mean, I was just, you know.